0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Rambling with Ryu. I'm Bean. And I'm Nancy. And today we have a few special guests here to talk about the epidural stimulator. We have a researcher, Aaron Phillips, from the Hotchkiss Brain Institute at the University of Calgary. We have Dr. Rishi Gill, who's a bariatric surgeon uh, and somebody with lived experience from Calgary, Alberta. And we have one of my really awesome peeps, Steve Cachetier, who also has lived experience and him as well as Rishi both have epidural stimulators implanted. So I would like to welcome all of you guys to our podcast and thank you all for being here.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for the invite.
0: <laughs> no problem. We'll get each of you to introduce yourselves. Just a brief little bio about who you are, how you got here. Um, Aaron, we'll start with you.
2: Yeah, okay, thanks. And uh, yeah, thanks, Bean and uh, Nancy, for, for the invite. It's fun to kind of get information about the different stimulators out there and, and see how fast the field's moving forward. I'm a, I'm a professor of neuroscience and physiology at the University of Calgary in the Cumming School of Medicine. Um, you said we were supposed to uh, introduce ourselves in detail, so I don't know how much detail that is, but I've been in the space of epidural stimulation and transcutaneous actually for maybe eight years now. Time flies. We published, I guess, the first paper in, in modern history of um, showing that transcutaneous stimulation could modulate blood pressure and autonomic function and then we did the same thing for epidural stimulation and JAMA Neurology. So I was the first author on both of those papers. And we've kind of been pushing along this field of science since then. There's now expansion into bladder, bowel, etc. My background, my, my undergrad was in health sciences at Western University in London, Ontario. And I did a PhD at University of British Columbia in experimental medicine. And then I went and did two postdoctoral fellowships largely supervised by a gentleman named Andrei Krasikov, who's a physician scientist specializing in autonomic functions after spinal cord injury and has been a great mentor. And then in 2017, I took my professorship role here in the medical school in Calgary. So that's a bit about me. If you have any follow-up questions, happy to answer them, but that's, that's kind of a summary of my background.
0: Well, thank you. Rishi, how about you? do we'll we you next?
1: My background is quite a bit away from neurosciences. I did medical school in the University of Alberta, and I did my PhD there in experimental surgery. And then I went through a general surgery residency, and eventually ended up working in, starting in Calgary as an upper GI and bariatric surgeon. And so I was practicing here in Calgary in that role. At the peter light hospital on the south health campus and unfortunately about two years ago i had a a traumatic spinal cord injury while i was boogie boarding in hawaii since that time you know it's been a obviously quite a whirlwind but i've come back to work now over the last uh, six months and even though i'm not operating anymore i'm on the uh, the medical side of my field and We've just recently started a new program called the Alberta OBC Center that I'm one of the medical directors for. And I'm still working at the Peter Lawhead Hospital as well. During my recovery and that process, uh, one of the things that uh, we'll, I guess we're chatting about here is uh, about the epidural stimulator. I got that overseas and have done rehab with it and Hope to give you guys a little bit about my um, experience with it uh, so far. What I always say up front is that this is not a cure for spinal cord injury, but it has potential to improve quality of life. It's a good place to begin, but there's a lot of work to be done.
0: Wow, that's awesome. I'm really excited to hear more details about your story and your experience with it. Okay, Stevo, you're up.
3: All right. First of all, thanks guys for having me. We're in some pretty good company with Aaron and Richie and of course Ryu. Thank you guys for everything that you guys are doing uh, within in the community. So my name's Steve. I grew up just outside of Edmonton. Grew up playing a ton of hockey. Huge Montreal Canadiens fan. I also work as a peer coordinator at Spinal Cord Injury Alberta. And I have a small medical supply company called Euro Medical Supplies Alberta that I've been doing for about five years. I had a... T6 spinal cord injury from a motorcycle accident back in 2010. And since then I've done a lot of FES, a lot of working out. I attended a place called first steps, which was the only place around back when I was injured, comparable to Ryu, but just an idea of just how great having a place like that in Edmonton is, uh, I don't, I wouldn't have had to travel. (laughs) So also married after my accident to a wonderful lady. Who has been supportive and is my best friend and we've been doing this together for the last 10 years now.
0: Yeah, Becca's awesome. Shout out to Becca.
3: Shout out Becca.
0: Well, thank you guys all for being here. We're really excited about this. This is something that the spinal cord injury world has been talking about for a few years and a lot of people have a lot of questions about this product and the benefits and stuff from it and how it works. So, we're really excited to be able to ask you guys all of the questions.
4: All right. So with that, Aaron, we're going to go to you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what is the epidural stimulator?
2: Okay. I'll keep it kind of straightforward to start. So the epidural stimulator, it's a device and it's really three components. So you've got the paddle, so to speak, which everyone's familiar with. There's actually a, quite a few versions of this out there, but the classic one that we're thinking about in the context of spinal cord injury is the paddle. It has 16 electrodes. Those can provide current. So you've got your positive and then your negative, and then you can turn them off for each of those 16. That paddle that has those electrodes that provide the current to the spinal cord, that is sutured on to the dura layer of the spinal cord. That's why it's epidural. Then it has a wire. Roughly, it's called the lead, so to speak. That's simply the wire that connects it to the third piece, which is the pulse generator. They call it the IPG. So when you hear people saying IPG, it's implantable pulse generator. And that's really what actually has the current inside of it. And it sends the current through the wires to the array, through the paddle array when needed. And then that's actually wirelessly connected. So that that typically is implanted underneath the skin and that's wirelessly connected to different devices. The clinician programmer is kind of like a tablet and it has lots of variability. You can program the device many different ways. And then typically, the patient will have a smaller one with a little bit less flexibility, less ability to change things, just to make sure that it's being used in the way that the clinician intended. And those are kind of the three pieces of the epidural stimulator in terms of the hardware.
4: Awesome. And so for those who are trying to envision what this looks like on the person or in the person, what kind of is the size of this epidural stimulator, the paddle part?
2: Yeah. So the paddle itself is about 64 millimeters in length, so six centimeters. So I mean, I guess about half the height of or half the length of your iPhone, I guess roughly, or your smartphone, and then it's about ten millimeters in in width. So it's pretty thin. So about one centimeter. So six by one. It's really hard to think if you, either of you guys can think, uh, Richie or Steve, about what what it would look like into something out there. It's hard to say. It's it's almost like a two-dimensional version of like one of those. The size of it, I guess, is the two-dimensional view of those multicolored pens that you have. (laughs) That's a terrible example, but that's kind of roughly the size.
4: Awesome. And then for those who don't know what the dural layer is, how do you explain that kind of going through from your spine to the spinal cord? What does that look like?
2: Yeah, so the dura is the thick outer lining surrounding the spinal cord. And actually, you have the spinal cord that's on the inside of your spine, inside the spinal column. And then you have, it's, it's housed in, in a fluid, a clear fluid called cerebral spinal fluid. And then surrounding that is the dura, which is kind of this thick protective layer. It's quite thick when you touch it and can have things secured to it. So that's, that's actually an important point. The, the epidural stimulator is not implanted onto the spinal cord per se. It, it's actually connected to the dura layer, which is this thick protective layer that kind of wraps
4: around the spinal cord and keeps the cerebral spinal fluid all surrounding the cord itself. Awesome. So then, do you want to go into a little bit of the physiology of how does the epidural stimulator work?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a huge topic because you know this this device has actually been around for at least fifty years for for pain, right? Mm-hmm. This is not a new therapy. It's that's why the big medical companies all have a version of it. It's been used for refractory pain for 50 years. So we have a decent idea of how it works. There's been a ton of mechanistic studies, including in my lab, that have looked through the exact circuits that are being activated, how to target it. Fundamentally, all the neurons in your body and the central nervous system communicate through electricity. It's all electrical currents passing around, and that's really how we're able to think and create sound and anything that involves the central nervous system. So after the spinal cord injury, and I kind of have to pair this to the spinal cord injury in terms of talking about the physiology, after the spinal cord injury, there's a disconnection of the circuits below that level of injury. So they're no longer having those supraspinal, I'll call it, or brain inputs to it. So the drive from the brain to those circuits is lost in those those pathways. It's complicated, and my mentors will kill me for simplifying it so much, but they're largely dormant. They're there and they're present, but they don't have a lot of circuits activating uh, around in there. So the stimulator, you suture it on, and it provides current into those inactive, dormant circuits below the level of injury. So you see some function start to recover when you put current in right away. But then there's some really interesting things happening where every person with a spinal cord injury, almost all, I will say, has some preservation of connections that are going across the injury site. So there's still a few pathways going across that site of injury. It's not complete. Even the people that are technically considered complete, so... When you have this tonic stimulation from the epidural stimulator activating those currents, you start to reveal those preserved pathways and the brain starts to take control over some functions below the level of injury. The extent of this is largely dependent on many, many, many factors. And like Richie said, this isn't a cure by any means. And one of the major factors limiting kind of how much we see of that brain connection is how much of those spared pathways are really there. That's a big, that's a big factor. And yeah, I mean, Richie and Steve can really talk to this. And from what I've viewed, from what I've seen in the patients in our trials and some of our preclinical work, that. The function of the stimulator often gets better over time with training and long-term delivery of the stimulation. So what this means is there's evidence for what's called plasticity. So circuits are starting to connect in appropriate and functional ways again. And some, some people actually have recovered supraspinal connections, so brain control over things below the level of injury, even when the stimulation was off after you know, being injured for 10, 20 years. So that's actually a very high level view of how it works. And I'm happy to answer any kind of follow-up questions or, you know, explain any jargon I may have laid in there accidentally.
4: Yeah, for sure. So talk to us a little bit about what that tonic stimulation means or refers to. And can you address more of that? Are we bypassing that injury site or are we stimulating that injury site or kind of where does this epidural stimulator typically get placed?
2: Yeah, those are all great questions. So tonic stimulation all I'm talking about is continuous stimulation. So you turn on the stimulation and you leave it on. That's it. That can be, I guess, another version of stimulation would be something where you're you're triggering the stimulation to something else where you're turning it on and off at precise time. So tonic stimulation simply means continuous stimulation. Perfect. In terms of where the implant is, yeah, there's lots of details in here. So we, we typically implant below the level of injury for spinal cord injury in, in all cases. And the stimulation actually, almost all of the mechanistic work suggests that the stimulation passes through the dorsal afferent. So these are these little fibers on the back of your spinal cord that emerge from the the spinal cord and actually are where all your sensory input goes into the spinal cord. So the current goes into those dorsal afferents and then activates the spinal cord through what are what those do, those dorsal afferents. So those are nerve fibers that are outside the cord and then they get in through them. We, so we put it on below the level of injury usually in the area historically for motor function, we've put it in of the area where the legs are controlled. So the spinal cord is kind of categorized or broken up into different spinal segments, so we've all heard probably in this field L1, L2, L3 L4, these lumbar segments. And these are where a lot of the leg movements are emerged from the spinal cord. And actually there's pattern generators in those areas that are responsible for, let's say, lifting your leg or flexing your hip or et cetera. So this array, the paddle with the spaces that it has, so it has six centimeters of length, it can cover those lumbar segments. So typically it's from L1 to S2, which covers most of the spinal segments responsible for lower limb movement. So that's the first lumbar segment to the second sacral segment. That's typically where it can be put in, but honestly it can be put in in many different locations. That's just historically, the clinical trials have been focused on leg movement. And so that's where it's been put in. So we're not bypassing the injury with the electricity. We're providing current below the level of injury. And this is reawakening dormant connections and dormant circuits.
4: That's really Very cool. All right. So let's get into a little bit of, I guess, who qualifies to get it or who can get it. So I know we've been heavily emphasized like the spinal cord injury, and that's why we have brought in different individuals who have lived experience with spinal cord injury. But are there any specific parameters in which you look for for somebody to get the most benefit from an epidural stimulator?
2: Just mean kind of in terms of the clinical trials themselves out there or...
4: Yeah, or just in general, cause, or somebody who, let's say, they're going to go abroad to get it, like uh, Richie has. Who would be the kind of ideal candidate?
2: You know, this is a really good kind of question and discussion point. As you know, it's, it's not indicated clinically, so it's not approved clinically for spinal cord injuries. So someone with a spinal cord injury can't go into the doc and say, I want this. just yet. You know, the primary way we have is through the clinical trials and then going abroad and getting it done. The demand is really large, it seems like, for this therapy right now. So it depends. Each clinical trial will have its own inclusion, what's called inclusion criteria, and exclusion criteria. So it can come all the way down to if you have a device already implanted or if you have hardware that you can't go into an MRI. Some studies aren't going to let you be involved because you won't be able to go through all the imaging procedures, for example. So this really comes down to a clinical trial by clinical trial case They each have their own, so it's really hard to give you a specific question, but I think the bigger Mm -hmm. point is that it's not approved yet for people with spinal cord injury, but if anyone out there kind of wants to understand who qualifies, it's probably best to really look up the specific clinical trials themselves and get involved. Most clinical trials, I'll say, typically are looking at paraplegics as opposed to quads or tetras, and that's just because they've been focused on leg function, but again, that's trial by trial.
4: Fair enough. Then do you want to talk a little bit about the benefits and risks? I know you said this has been around for the last 50 years, traditionally in the focus of pain. So going towards the spinal cord injury side of things and the trials that have been done, what you know from the literature and research, can you address some of the benefits and risks associated with uh, the epidural stimulator?
2: Yeah. So like I said, it's it's been around for quite some time. I haven't looked at the safety, like the adverse events and in a little while, but I'm, I think that from the pain literature, the adverse events are around one, 1%. And I think the primary one, I'll, I'll look it up while we're chatting further and clarify, but the primary one is the positional change or a failure of the array. It's not some catastrophic adverse event. It's really just a stop working or an electrode didn't work. And I think they're around 1%. So, I mean, Richie can talk about this extensively too, with his surgical background, but this is a minimally invasive surgery. In some of the trials, they're doing it as a day surgery. Some will keep you at just for one night. I think it really only takes about 40 minutes. And most of the surgeons that I talk to call it boring, which is funny because it sounds, it sounds a little <laughs> dark. But I think Richie will agree, you kind of want your surgeon to say that a procedure is so routine and mundane that it's boring. But that's really what you hear. So, I mean, the risks, I think, are uh, concerning and they are the same as almost any other surgery that there is. But I think the word surgery has just gotten a little scary sometimes for people. But this is one of the more routine ones. I don't know, Richie, do you want to add into that?
1: Yeah, you know, I totally agree with you. And the, the key things to remember is that when you're placing this device, it's actually, it's a sterile the device, is sterile is placed into an area where there's very, very little risk of infection. And one of the reasons when you talk about placing these devices for chronic pain, which, you know, would be a, one of the neurosurgeons doing it, they always quote a really low risk of paralysis. But if you already have paralysis, then there isn't that risk. That's the one that everyone worries about. And so all of a sudden, that major risk is gone. So it's almost like from a surgical standpoint, it's actually quite a safe procedure, right? Obviously, you need to have someone who's trained in a comfortable operating near the spinal cord. But in general, most neurosurgeons would say this would be a very routine procedure for them.
0: Well, that is good to hear that it's not like a rare complex procedure that not a lot of surgeons know how to do. Can we just jump in and hear your guys' surgical experiences, Richie and Steve?
1: Sorry, say that again, Bean?
0: Um, can we just like hear what your surgical experience was when you had your stimulator implanted?
1: Yeah, for sure. I'm more than happy to share that. One thing I will echo that Aaron has said, if someone is looking or thinking about this, it's really is important to consider maybe a clinical trial as probably the initial or even best option, because it's a very safe, controlled manner for this to be placed, especially because it's not Health Canada and FDA approved at this time, even though we hope as the evidence is mounting that that it will get there. So I just want to say that one of the reasons I went overseas was not because I didn't want to be part of a clinical trial. I actually was quite extensive in searching for a clinical trial in North America. But unfortunately, as Aaron had alluded, majority of patients that had these placed in clinical trials, it was for uh, T spine injuries. And with mine being a cervical spinal cord injury, I just wasn't eligible for them. And I did contact a number of centers about that. And I did quite a bit of research before to figure out whether uh, it would be safe to go elsewhere. And that's always a difficult decision. Medical tourism for any type of condition, you have to be really careful because the standards all across the world are very different. And sometimes in Canada, we forget to be having a really good public healthcare system which is really well standardized for a majority of conditions that we treat. That is not like that everywhere in the world, right? And I would say, just to echo, uh, I think until this is approved uh, for this purpose, I, I do think clinical trials are probably the safest uh, place to consider one of these uh, devices. But fortunately, from my own experience, I was very fortunate that I had an overall positive experience. The surgery is pretty minimally invasive, so it was a small incision to place the device. The generator was placed subcutaneously just under my skin on the on my lower left back. And to be honest, because of my level of injury, I didn't really have any pain or uh, any discomfort because I don't have any sensation in that area. And then in terms of recovery-wise, it was pretty quick. Like Darren has alluded to, it's pretty minimally invasive You know, I probably could have done it as a day surgery in most places, but because I was overseas, you know, I was staying there for that time. The biggest risk, I guess, would be infection is what you really worry about. I was fortunate that that wasn't an an issue at that time.
0: Oh, good. I'm glad to hear you had a positive experience. Steve, let's hear your story.
3: Yeah. I mean, like Richie, fairly quick. I went in in the morning. Uh, I was, I think, back at my hotel just after lunch. So it was that quick. I was able to actually the next morning we went in to turn the simulator on to test it. This is obviously for the trial, went in, tested it, made sure everything worked properly and basically like flew home that night. So just to give you an idea of how quick and and how in-invasive it is, I was on a plane and home the next day after surgery. So if that gives you an idea.
2: Yeah, I have a funny story actually kind of related to that also in one of the trials that I was involved in, but. was a Canadian that was being implanted in Minneapolis. Amazing, amazing lady. And we give them one day off after the surgery uh, to rest and recover before we bring them back in for kind of some more testing. So we were like, you know, we were testing her two days after she was implanted and saying, you know, how was your, how was your day of rest? Everything okay? She's like, She's like, yeah. She's like, I felt great. She's like, we went shopping. We went to the Mall of America. So she, she felt so good that the next day that she got up and you know went to the mall and did some tourism stuff. So just as a, it's a funny story surrounding the uh, the idea that it's a minimally invasive kind of procedure.
0: Yeah, that's pretty sweet.
4: All right, and let's uh, go back to kind of addressing what are the benefits or potential benefits, I guess, because you know every person's going to be different, and we don't fully know, but of the epidural stimulator. We'll address that to Aaron to start, and then we'll get the personal experience from Richie and Steve.
2: Yeah, it's going to be super important to hear lots from Steve and Richie. I see many benefits in the work that I do. So I think, and I mean, I don't want to overstate this, and again, Steve. Stephen Ritchie can kind of speak, but I think in the world of spinal cord injury, there hasn't been too many therapies developed over the past 50 years or so. So I think this is kind of the first major step forward for the treatment of spinal cord injury, even though, as Ritchie said, it's not a cure by any means. It's one of the first therapies, if not the first therapy developed in at least 50 years for treating spinal cord injury. So we see, of course, the classic stuff that's easy to see with the naked eye. We see volitional movement, sometimes as early as as soon as the stimulator is turned on. Often it's just a toe or some... Uh, flexing or some ballistic leg movements, but it can get better over time. We also see improvements in bladder, uh, bowel, sexual function, several autonomic functions, um, exercise tolerance goes up. I mean, think of any biological system in your body that's gotten lost by spinal cord injury. And so far, we've at least seen preliminary evidence that these functions are being improved. Now, not every patient has the same level of recovery or the same Number of systems recovered, but broadly we see some profound improvements in function across a number of health domains. But I think it's more important to hear from Steve and Richie because you know I get excited about the prospect of it as a scientist, as a uh, clinical scientist, seeing people happy about it. But I, you know, I think it's always important to get the reality from from the guys experiencing it.
3: Yeah, I'll jump in right now. Like Aaron was saying, just the benefits that he's seen from all sorts of different patients. Obviously, like he said, it's not the same for every one of us. But I can talk a little bit about just what I've noticed since I've had it. And I mean, I've had it for about a year and a half now. Unfortunately, because of COVID, I happened halfway through the trial. So I've, I'm i halfway through. So I've had about six months of the stimulator uh, adjustments going down to Minneapolis once a month to have it adjusted. So in those six months, it went from obviously uh, no movement below my level of injury to being able to move it the day they turn it on, right? So, and that's mostly just like some dorsiflex little movements. As things went on, as it progressed, as they adjust the settings uh, month after month, I had more control over those movements. I started getting larger range of movements from like hip flexions to knee extensions. Yeah, so definitely, I mean, those are the visual things that you can see, right? Those are what the world wants to see when it comes to epidural stimulators, in a sense. But the true benefits of the stimulator for me have been, you know, things like the reduced spasticity. So, One thing that was always tough was flying down to Minneapolis back and forth. On that three hour flight, my legs would get tired. They would would get lots of spasticity. Uh, Transferring out of the seat back into my wheelchair after a flight was, was tough, right? Lots of tons of spasticity, like anybody that has a spinal cord injury has probably felt. Flying home after turning it on that very first time and the whole flight noticing and talking about it with Rebecca and transferring into my chair once we land, without having to worry about that, without having to feel tense or stiff or having that spasticity when I go to transfer, that fear of, you know, following or whatnot. I mean, that was massive for me, for my life. You know, that was right away. I said to Becca, I smiled and I was like this. I would do this a hundred times over again, just for this. Another thing that I noticed as well was that night, just going to bed and being able to sleep through the night without having spasticity, you know, spasms throughout the night, waking me up or waking Rebecca up. So she was happy as well uh another thing too is like that you and these are things i noticed right away it was like once again the very first night was not getting cold in the middle of the night and my body temperature like regulating itself and when i would when i would be too warm i noticed that my feet would sweat so like the temper you know it's trying to cool my body off oh. uh, below my level of injury did your feet
0: ever sweat before no never oh my god that's awesome. right
3: so yeah so I, I could tell like that's something completely different and and not just seeing that my feet are sweating, but also noticing that I'm not cold or I'm not overheating, right? So, I mean, that's another thing that changes your life after a spinal cord that, you, you know, that can help drastically, I think. Mm, yep. Of course, bladder, sexual function improvements, those were massive, right? And, I mean, going from – because I use a standing frame every day mostly or try to get it in every single day. And, and going from sitting to standing – and not feeling lightheaded or not having to take my time, you know, with the standing frame, moving up into a, from a sitting to standing position, working out without feeling too tired or lightheaded or just feeling like I have more energy all around.
0: That's awesome. It really, like, it had made a difference in your quality of life.
3: Yeah, massive, right? And it's the little things that you wouldn't know or wouldn't if you didn't have a spinal cord injury, right? Yeah. The things you can't see that made the biggest difference for me.
0: Yeah, honestly, after hearing like a few people's response to like the spasticity, I want one so bad. I can't wait for this to come to market because I don't qualify for studies either. But just to get rid of the spasticity would be such a huge relief. And it would, yeah, it changes your sleep, changes your day pattern. Yeah, that would be enough to make me want to get it for sure.
1: I echo the same things that Steve is saying as well. The way I've thought about it, looking at it is two parts, right? So one, I think of it as a rehab tool. Mm-hmm. And two, I look at it as a way to improve your quality of life. So from the rehab side, I think of it as, you know, one of the challenges with a, any of our spinal cord injuries or anyone's is that you want to prevent future complications, right? So things such as pressure sores, you know, the diminishing of your bone density, and all those types of things preventing injury. So, as a rehab tool, it does allow you to do more than you typically would be able to do, right? So, everything from the standpoint or assisted stepping and some of the other exercises. So, that alone provides a bit of a benefit because you can't work out the same, but this does help you do that part of it. The other part, and Steve has really highlighted, is that it is those things that you don't see that people don't focus on because, you know, if you ask most people, walking isn't actually at the top of their list there's a lot of other things that are actually well ahead of it because you know that would be better for your quality of life so I'll give you guys an example the one one of the things and me and Aaron talked about this quite a bit is being able to even regulate your blood pressure makes a big difference for someone with like myself who has a cervical spinal cord injury and before this I would have quite a bit of times where I was you know, I had to put my head down in my lap or I'm just getting really lightheaded towards the end of the day, which made it difficult for me to spend time with the family and the kids mm-hmm. or, or even to you know, be able to do a day of work. With it being optimized, I can run it for about an hour for a particular program that really works well with my pressure. And then the rest of the day, I don't feel lightheaded. I don't get that issue. I'm able to focus and do my thing without having to take that break or rest in the middle of the day. So that's been really important. And kind of as Steve alluded to, reducing your spasms you know obviously during the day and it's really nice when you're trying to transfer and different things like that but actually letting you sleep at night is a huge thing it's amazing when you get a big kick all of a sudden in the middle of the night how quickly that wakes you up so being able to have that rest and being able to get you know multiple hours in without having your body spasm quite intensively makes a big difference and then yes in the other autonomic functions it's a gradual process and, and the reality is everyone will feel like differently depending on what tracks are open and mm-hmm. how uh, it affects that but you know those small changes in your quality of life can make a big difference onto your day-to-day functioning and the way you spend your day either at work or with your family
0: yeah It's really like interesting to see and to hear how much it's changed someone's quality of life. And then, yeah, Richie, we totally agree that you have to really push back all of the secondary complications that can arise from a spinal cord injury. And in the recent weeks, I've talked to quite a few of my friends who've been paralyzed for, you know, 20 plus years. And those who haven't taken care of their bodies, they're really feeling the effects of that. And so, if this is something that can, you know, is an easier kind of way of, allowing yourself to be healthy enough to curb some of those secondary complications. I feel like so many people could benefit.
1: Yeah, you see it all the time. I mean, people with, that are able-bodied as well, right? That, you know, we tell them about how, you know, exercising, focusing on your core strength, eating well, these things help prevent other issues that they may feel as you get older, and especially when you get my age or a little bit older than I am. And the same thing continues for people with disabilities as well, right? And the spinal cord injuries that we are in a way trying to, it's more work for sure, but you, we are trying to prevent those issues from coming down the road. And mm-hmm. so the more we can do now, hopefully it will allow us to maximize our abilities down the, ro- down the road and hopefully not have to have those significant complications that we used to see, you know, 10, 20 years back with spinal cord injuries because of not being able to do that maintenance part, right?
2: Yeah, I find the spasticity part so interesting because it's everyone sees an improvement. But I have a question for Stephen Ritchie, kind of, because we haven't chatted as a group before, the, the three of us. What would you guys want to see, like more research into, more studies on? Is it the spasticity thing is completely unstudied for one, but everyone is getting an improvement. So I just got my mind going of like, what should we be looking at this more closely? But I, and then it led to maybe I should just ask Stephen Ritchie what they'd like. <laughs> See my research
1: on. It. Well, you know, Aaron, we've talked about this before, but my thought process for this device, because remember, it's been around for so long, right? Yeah, yeah. I always think about this as like the flip phone version of this device. I'd like to see the iPhone version or the Android version, right? Like, we'd like to see this device being updated based on today's standards of software and hardware, right? It seems like it's got a long way to go. And you're, as you're talking about the spasticity part, it hopefully. If my phone can do as much as it does right now and able to allow me to function and you know talk to everyone and do all my work on it, I like to see this device being even more optimizable where you could have a really a good focus on this precise setting almost completely takes away my spasms or this setting makes it so when I sleep, it allows me to get into a deeper sleep. Like mm-hmm. right now it, it does it in a, I think of it almost like in a rudimentary way or because it's giving you just rough uh, or general stimulation. I would like it to see it become even more precise in the yeah. future. Because the spinal cord, as you know, it's so intricate, right? And so even with this device and 16 electrodes, it's able, to, and all the variations we're able to manipulate it, it's still it's almost too big for how precise our spinal cord is. So,
2: yeah, it's a bit of a
1: yeah it is a little bit like a sledgehammer to the problem rather than actually being able to pick at it appropriately so
2: yeah and i think that is definitely one of the next steps is to get much more precise in the delivery of current and really optimize the the current delivery to enhance function but that's interesting to hear i totally agree with you i love that cell phone analogy <laughs> <And>
1: now,
2: <laughs> this is the razor version <laughs>
1: yeah yeah this is like my, this, is, this is my parents used to have that initial version like that, yeah. the, the big one you'd walk around with. that's what it yeah. feels like sometimes yeah uh, the
3: old Motorola. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I was just
3: gonna say, like, as you're saying that, and like, using a paddle right now, that's only 16 channels, like, is there a possibility, like, let's go 32? And, and then you'd be able to be more precise on where you're stimulating? Or which nerves? Or is that something to look forward to in the future? Is that a possibility? Right? And if you're doing that, like, does it help? Like Richie was saying, like, would it help with specifics? So like, get one setting for spasticity having those more channels or for movement or sleeping or you know your bowels your bladders your
2: sexual functions would that help right yeah i mean ideally the technology is getting there you know and there there are 32 channel arrays that that are available um, haven't been implanted another problem too related to that is also the coverage right so we can only get over so many spinal cord segments with with the dimensions of this array. So getting a bit more reach and well, I guess Richie has two in, but I think more and more people end up with uh, or want more coverage over more spinal cord segments so they can get enhanced function of all the different little treasures that of uh, functional treasures that are inside each spinal segment would like to be reawoken, you know?
3: Almost like you're putting the paddle across the whole spinal cord
2: at one point. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. You know, just light up all the segments and get them all going. I think it's it's a logical step, to be honest. It sounds crazy right now, but it's really probably a logical step.
1: Yeah. And you know, the other thing we've talked about before, Aaron, is that, you know, if you could do that for the majority of the spinal cord and maybe have some kind of almost like artificial intelligence to be able to help you with those variations and permutations, then you could have it so much more precise, but yeah, you know, all the work you've been doing, I'm interested to see how it will progress. Right. And um, hopefully that will be uh, as more people become interested in this part too, hopefully it can be advanced in that way.
2: Yeah. We're kind of working on similar things now where uh, we're trying to exactly use some computational approaches to understand intraoperatively when the device is put in to understand, you know, exactly where it's going to be, exactly what segments are going to be covered. But then you also have a discussion with the participant or patient before they go under surgery. So that if we have to choose between two functions in there, we know which ones are the preferences, so to speak.
3: Can I just speak on that a little bit? Like I know before I was going in for my surgery, I spoke with the doctor and I I just kind of mentioned that as well. Like one of the things is uh, my levels of t6 so it's i don't have much uh, as far as like muscles in my stomach or core mm-hmm. and one of the things that i asked for is i wanted was if possible connect those electrodes to my core as much as possible so that if i stimulate it right if i turn it on high enough i can get some core um, stability
2: yeah right yeah so that's kind of what you're saying right exactly so you know i know that surgeon well and i know that he would have placed it as best he could have over the spinal segments. You'd only have so much wiggle room, but he definitely would have opted if he had to make a decision on the spacing. He would have opted to cover the kind of thoracic, lower thoracic, high lumbar areas where your kind of core muscles are, where some most some of them are. Yeah. And then, of course, after
3: that, working with them to find parameters that uh, or that I could turn on a setting where it gave me that core strength and I could, I could turn that setting on use it throughout the day. If I'm doing a lot of wheeling or whatnot, and it gave me a lot of core like balance once in my chair. Yeah. So it, it worked out really well in my case.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I'd like to see more of that, you know, like understanding and, and making sure the placement and coverage is precise. And I guess we got on this track because of, uh, <laughs> we were talking about more precision and I think more precision is important. And, but I also think, Having a good knowledge of the segments and what each segment does, and then making sure we have coverage over those key segments is going to be equally as important as the precision. Yeah, that's kind of my sense of how the future is going to go in this space. That's
0: really, That's really cool. Um, I do want to go back to Richie. Uh, Aaron had mentioned that you have two stimulators implanted. So I wanted to go back to you and ask you about that and where are they implanted and what made you go back to get the second one?
1: Okay. So um, the first one, as Aaron had mentioned, uh, it's around that T10, T11 level. So uh, that's the one I found has had the biggest improvement for my quality of life. For, so from things like spa- spasticity and my uh, blood pressure regulation, that aspect of it, as well as allowing me to do more in rehab. When I went back, The question was, what if we place this a bit higher with my cervical spinal cord injury? Mm -hmm. Could this improve some function in my upper limbs and my hands? Because, you know, as a practicing surgeon, losing my hands was quite a devastating injury for me, and I wanted to see if that something we may be able to improve, even a small amount, would make make a big difference. The truth is, the upper one is placed just below the level of my injury, so it's around C seven T one in that region. Mm -hmm. What I have found is that it can help small amount for the spasticity part. It has been helpful for me to rehab and do more with my upper limbs, especially mm-hmm. my chest and triceps, and they've, I think, have improved, but well, my hands have not. I would say I've gotten better in terms of coordinating and you know just learning and adapting, but their function um, has not improved. So I would say that is even more difficult to know if that's something in someone with maybe a less severe spinal cord injury may have found a benefit or not, but I can't really speak to it. And, you know, all the research and stuff I did before doing that is still very limited. But yeah, I, you know, I would say the one that's in the lower spinal cord around T10, T11, that, that's been really positive. The second one, I wouldn't say has been disappointing, but I would say it has been because um, I was pretty prepared ahead of time that the understanding is still very limited. And this may not have that exact potential I would say it's still hard to know could it be optimized in a way to make provide more of a benefit I just think the reality is is when you talk about leg function or rehab in that sense those are much larger nerve roots you're dealing with when you're talking about working with your hands these are much more precise and smaller and kind of goes back to the whole precision thing I don't think this device is precise enough at least at this time to help with more like volitional hand movements
0: Mm -hmm. Well, everything in the spinal cord injury world is trial and error, right? Because every single person is different, their injuries different, so we don't know what's going to work for everybody. And I really commend you guys for trialing this because
4: mm-hmm. it does
0: need to be refined. And you know, without people who are in studies and going abroad to try these things, there's we won't ever know what works and what doesn't work. And I appreciate that you guys have both volunteered your bodies to do this.
1: Yeah, you know, I think Aaron and his team have done a phenomenal job in terms of trying to move this forward potentially to help get this approved by Health Canada and the FDA and the research they're doing is going to help a lot of patients and I hopefully this will also encourage others that are researchers to help in even in a collaborative way or in their own research labs to help see if there's benefits for patients with spinal cord injury right because it's a very challenging injury and unfortunately it has had a very slow moving versus things like oncology and other fields which have moved a lot further ahead and I hope that this will be something that will find a way forward you know that was one of our thoughts even though I wasn't able to be part of a clinical trial because unfortunately, I wasn't a candidate my hope was that we could at least even though it's an N of one to help move science forward a little bit and if that helps that's you know worthwhile and so yeah that's uh kind of was my thought process considering going overseas at that time
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah and I mean Richie I wanted to Thank you. And Steve though, too, because this was one of the questions for later is do people participate in studies, et cetera. But I mean, you guys and and Richie, you've been incredible. You immediately, even though you went abroad, you wanted to come into the lab and help provide information on how things were going. We've sat for hours and just like chatted so I could learn exactly what was going on in your specific scenario. And you've been really giving with your time and uh, and energy. And I, I know that you're a, you're an extremely nice guy and a great person, but you're also like, I know that you're trying to give back and, and help advance the field. So I wanted to kind of commend you guys both for that. I know Steve hasn't had as much opportunity to participate yet because of COVID, but, uh, but you guys are both kind of given a lot to, uh, to the future and to the people in your community that are still waiting to learn, right? And haven't stepped forward.
3: Yeah, the reason why I got into the study in the first place or applied for it anyways, was knowing that it wasn't a cure, But knowing that if I fit that perfect criteria and I was a good candidate to help research move forward, I felt not that I owed it to my community, but I wanted to give back to something. So that at some point when I'm too old to to do this research or when I move on, I've done something where I've helped science get to a point where maybe one day somebody doesn't have to go through what I went through. And I think that's what kind of gave me that push to, to apply and to take this very serious and to, to, to work with the researchers to try and you know get the best out of the stimulator for myself right
0: yeah well i mean without people willing to try this you know technology is not going to move forward and we won't find a cure without moving uh, without people to trial stuff on so i'm glad you guys have uh stepped up to that
4: all right. So from there, I'm going to go back to you, Aaron. I know you mentioned in the very beginning a little bit of it about your research and study in the transcutaneous spinal stimulation, as well as the epidural. Do you want to speak to the difference between the two?
2: Yeah, sure. They both work, <laughs> like full stop. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, they, they do both work. Transcutaneous, as it sounds, it goes transcutaneous, so through the skin. So it's really surface electrodes over the spine and you turn it on and somehow this stimulation awakens circuits in the spinal cord. We don't know as much about how it's getting in and about the underlying principles, which is maybe a bit of a barrier, but maybe, you know, you did different talk to different people and some people say, oh, wow, it works. So epidural is the implantable. So, you know, you have a 40 minute day surgery or maybe overnight and then you have it. I think in the future, you know, there's obviously going to be more studies on the transQ, and we'll start nailing down exactly how it works. The big question, I think, in my mind, at least, that I talk to a lot in this area is, is the current actually getting straight into the spinal cord or is it going through like neurons, nerves in the skin or, you know, outside of the spinal cord and then going into the cord and activating the cord through these kind of skin fibers? there's a modeling paper that a lot of people in the transcutaneous field always reference that says it's getting directly into the spinal cord. I've always found that not compelling just yet. We probably need more data to, to certainly show more than just a mathematical model that it's getting directly in. Um, and it sounds like my new show, but it's actually kind of important because we're talking about these specific spinal segments we want to activate. And if we don't know if it's getting into the cord directly or through the skin, then that's that's a major difference in where you would put those electrodes in the surface because you're now going through what's called the dermatomes, So those skin areas are responsible for the segment as opposed
4: to trying to steer it right into the cord. So there's some uncertainties on the trans side. I think just the big difference between the two just for the layman is one, you need a surgery. The other one, it's non-invasive. It's just right on the skin. Yeah, and I guess specificity-wise, the transcutaneous is really never going to be as specific as the epidural stimulator.
2: Yeah, I I don't think so, but I mean the jury's still out. I think in the future, it'll be kind of a personal choice that might depend on this time since injury or even the age of the person and how much they want to bother with a clunky device hanging around potentially versus the implant. But they also don't have to have a surgery. Like it's going to come down to probably a choice of what different folks uh, different folks want.
1: I you know, Aaron, I was going to say the one thing that just looking at it as a from a patient's point of view, it might end up being more of a spectrum where if people trial maybe the transcutaneous, that helps you maybe get more information about where the epidural may work better. And there might be a bit more of a overlap rather than one or the other down the road potentially as well, right?
2: Totally agree, actually. You know, I think even some people have talked about you know, envisioning the future. And some people might use TransQ to kind of see if they're going to be a responder, I guess, or something, like if it's going to work well for them or not or what their capacity would be. And then if maybe, like you said, like, and then move on from that to the epidural. Yeah. So it could be a spectrum.
4: For sure. And that kind of brings us back to around to why become a part of a trial? I mean, I guess, Richie and Steve, you answered that really well. Um, Aaron, do you want to speak to your side of things? Like, why do you find the value in your each participant?
2: I mean, I'm a scientist that runs clinical trials, too, so I'm biased. But I mean, we can't do this research without people participating. No no medical research will ever get there without people participating. So it is fundamental. And I mean, it's enriching also for the participant, because despite how you, you may feel a little bit like a guinea pig at certain points, but... The entire team and the people involved are listening and you're having an influence over, you know, how the next steps will go, how the what will be the interest of the future. Look at how spasticity is now just through this conversation and through the patients involved. Now all of a sudden it's on everyone's mind because the people have been reporting back these unexpected things. So it's a two-way street. The lines of communication are not just, you know, dictation of what the patients need to do. So you get involved, you do have a frontline voice with everyone. But that's probably m- minor compared to just the societal impact of letting and getting these trials going and moving forward. We, they, we, they can't be done without people willing to participate. I should say that you know epidural stimulation and transcutaneous stimulation, is there's a huge appetite for it. Most of the trials have long wait lists of people that want to get involved in, in the order of thousands. I, I think it speaks to the fact that there hasn't been a really effective therapy in a long time. But each person that's involved, we are extremely grateful for. And I mean, I think Steve and Richie, I'd love to hear their experiences being in these trials. And, you know, I know Richie worked with me for months on end, weekly, multiple times a week. But I mean, I think people generally feel good about their experience and uh, and the fact that they've given back. Yeah, I think even, you know, let's look at no, no podcast right now is complete without mentioning COVID at least once. So, you know. None of the COVID vaccines, for example, would ever move forward if these if, if people weren't willing to step forward and take a, take a chance, you know?
3: Yeah, I think all in all, my whole experience right from the start, right from talking, getting to know the doctors, the surgeon, the people that have been coordinating all this trial, coordinating when I have to come down, flights, hotel, you know what I mean? Like just helping, stepping up, uh, being there when I have questions. So, I mean, they're all just an email away. They respond right away. You go down for, you know, your month to month checkup. You're having fun with them. You know, you, they become almost like friends. So the experience is great. They listen. If you have concerns, they're all over it. And I have never had to worry once throughout this whole trial. I've never felt uncomfortable, unsafe. It's been actually a pleasure, to be honest.
1: Yeah, same here. It's been really nice to work with like Aaron and his team. And I think, you know, being someone like myself, who's been on both ends of uh, clinical studies and trials, um, it's, you know, the only way to move science forward is to participate, just like the only way to move politics forward is to vote. And so this is just one of the things that uh, we can we can help to give back in with our time and effort, right? So.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. Okay, I have a question for Steve and for Richie. As people with lived experience and people who have stimulators implanted, do either of you feel that there are any downfalls to this?
3: I'll go first, Richard, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I haven't experienced anything. Like I said, it's been just over a year that I've Mm -hmm. had the the stimulator on and in. I mean, other than be like part of a trial, you have to think before you get into a trial, especially one that's not in your country. So I'm going into the the States, we're going to Minneapolis once a month. Something that you have to consider is it's a year long trial. You have to be fully committed. You have to be aware of what you're getting yourself into, right? Mm -hmm. The costs associated with the trial. So flying down hotels, foods, and then your time missing work. If you're working, you know, if you have a companion, you need somebody to come with you, their costs, their time. So the only part of this trial that has affected me is, is the costs and times. And I mean, I thought about that going in before applying. I knew that was part of it and I was okay doing it, right? So, I think that's the, one of the biggest things. As far as like the stimulator, again, like I said the people the help uh, mm-hmm. they're there whenever you need them. I've had no issues and no downfalls on that side whatsoever.
0: Wicked. And Rishi?
1: Yeah, you no know, same thing here. The yeah, cost is always the most prohibitive thing and that's one of the challenges that exist right that and that's just it's one of the challenges in any research not just an epidural stimulation otherwise it's been a really positive experience I think the one thing for anyone who's interested in looking into clinical trials one is take your time to look at them ask questions speak you know I spoke with obviously Aaron but also a number of different researchers in the in the U.S. and abroad to uh, get their thoughts and views and people are actually willing to share that uh, with you they want you to be as well informed as possible the second is to make sure that we manage our own expectations as well, right? The, the key, I bring it up a few times is to really with this type of injury, there's no such thing as a miracle cure or a magic bullet, right? And so you really have to manage that. We're, look we're looking at very realistic outcomes such as improving some quality of life, potentially improving the ability to do rehab. But as long as that ma- you manage your expectations up front, then it's a much better. A journey moving forward, right? So that a little bit of that um, upfront is really important. And it's good to actually talk with other people. Like I spoke with a number of people that uh, had the epidural st- uh, stimulator placed before me to get that information. And that helped manage my own expectations as well.
0: That's great advice. So what's your plan for the future, Richie? Where you see yourself in the near future and the distant future?
1: It's always, it's always interesting. I hope that I can still help out in this field i've just recently joined the board of praxis and i'm hoping that will allow me to help with spinal cord injury and that side of things Mm -hmm. from a professional standpoint i'm back working now and not operating anymore but i'm working still in the similar field that i was in upper gi surgery and bariatrics but i do it more on the medical side now not on the operative side and then um personally i'm as busy as can be we have three kids and so uh, Even though my life slowed down a little bit, theirs has not, and it's only getting faster. And unfortunately, I have a really wonderful uh, partner, and she makes this all doable. And um, I would say that life doesn't stop. It just keeps moving forward.
0: Yeah, agreed. And steve Mm -hmm. how about you, man? Where do you see yourself uh, in the future?
1: So,
3: I mean, obviously, I'm waiting for an opportunity to get back into the swing of things with this study, the East End Trial. Get down in Minneapolis, you know, work with them again with COVID. And once that clears up or hopefully we find a vaccine, however that works, however that looks, yeah, you know, get that rolling again. I've actually been lucky enough to work with Aaron, plan to meet and then within the next couple of weeks to to adjust some of these settings and, and kind of get things rolling again that way. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's still the, uh, you know, the clinical side of things or the trial side of things where I have to get back down to Minneapolis at some point. You know, other than that, I mean, it's like Richie said, life goes on, right? So, you know, you're always trying to stay busy mm-hmm. um, with work. Obviously, spinal cord injury, Alberta is a passion. I love working there. Mm-hmm. I love talking to anybody, new injury, old injury, mm-hmm. uh, sharing my experiences. Also, we recently, I joined a group called Wheels of Change. Yeah. <laughs> which is a great being part of as well. It's a, it's a wonderful group. It's about, there's nine of us all ends with spinal cord injuries. And, you know, we got some plans to advocate for each other and others mm-hmm. in the neurological community. Yeah. So that's something that we've been working with lots. And that's something that, you know, I, it fills up a lot of my time. I love doing it as well. And I mean, the other thing is just trying to stay healthy during all this COVID. I know uh, with winter coming as well, Yeah. it's pretty tough. To get out, exercise. I mean, even just to get out of the house some days. Yeah. It's dark, it's gloomy, it's cold, there's snow everywhere. It's hard to get around. So um, preparing myself for that.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it is bulking season. We And we got to be careful with what kind of bulking we're putting on ourselves.
2: Yeah, Absolutely, yeah.
0: And Aaron, what is next for you? What is next for the study? And where is your future headed?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's crazy right now. You know, I'm super... Stoked and excited, and I'm extremely excited about what the next five years has in hold. Not just for me, but you know, this therapy and and this technology for the community. It's just, you know, I look back at where we were five years ago, and then think, holy, I can't believe how we ended up here. And I think the next five years are going to be equally as surprising how far we come. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is really my life's work. I'm obsessed with this stuff, and I, I we're twenty four seven on my team moving this stuff forward. So one, I don't know, maybe some of you guys have heard about it. There hasn't been big media about it just yet in Alberta, but there has been in the South. So DARPA, which is uh, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, mm-hmm. uh, they just funded a huge grant called Bridging the Gap, and the gap being the spinal cord injury. $48 million were part of this team, University of Calgary and my group. Mm-hmm. And within five years, they want to have a wirelessly implanted stimulation system for movement as well as bladder and hemodynamics, so cardiovascular. This involves clinical trial money, new technology, new implant, largely epidural stuff. So that's taking up a ton of our time. I mean, DARPA has to come up with a few things here and there, just minor stuff though, like uh, like the internet and uh, and GPS were developed by DARPA so when when DARPA puts this type of money behind things it tends to move forward so that's really where we're focused a lot of our time on right now Um, part of that is uh, related to the DARPA is we're in the next hopefully year uh, hopefully six months to a year we're planning on launching a the first Canadian uh, epidural stimulation trial here in Calgary and in Alberta broadly and so we're we're ramping up for that, really.
0: Nice. That's awesome. That's so exciting. I hope I qualify for your trial. And if I don't, I hope that it comes to market real soon.
2: I hope so, too. I hope so, too. <laughs>
0: I want it so bad. Um, Okay, thank you guys so much for sharing your stories and for your expertise and just sharing your opinion and your knowledge on this very interesting topic that a lot of people are talking about. And uh, like I said, I get questions about it all the time. People ask me about Steve all the time. And I'm really glad that we were able to ask some in-depth questions and have some experts answer them.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Bean. Really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, we really appreciate having you guys. If people have any questions, if of our listeners have any questions for either Steve, Richie or Aaron, feel free to shoot them to me or Nancy and uh, we will definitely get them to these guys. Uh, unless you guys are okay with sharing your information, then we can leave it in the description of this podcast. Again, if you're listening, please give us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That helps us increase our reach. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with another episode in two weeks.